The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. The Lord our God, by hearing from His Word. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them to Leviticus chapter 19. As we finish Leviticus 19 this morning, we're looking at verses 19 to 37. Leviticus 19, verses 19 through 37. This is what it looks like to be holy. This is God giving instruction from His Word to us as people. So let us give our attention to God as He speaks to us in His Holy Word. Leviticus 19, beginning in verse 19. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. If a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave assigned to another man and not yet ransomed or given her freedom, a distinction shall be made. They shall not be put to death. But she, because she was not free. But he shall bring his compensation to the Lord, to the entrance of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin that he has committed, and he shall be forgiven for the sin that he has committed. When you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden or uncircumcised. Three years it shall be forbidden to you, it must not be eaten. And in the fourth year all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year you may eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you. I am the Lord your God. You shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full depravity. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out. And so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. And you shall fear the Lord. You shall fear your God. I am the Lord. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall do no wrong in judgment in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights a just Ephah, and a just Hin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, 
you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. This concludes the reading of God's word. May God now be pleased to add his blessing to it. Well, we pick up from where we left off last week at looking what it means to be holy. What does it look like to be holy? And again, that word holy can conjure up all sorts of negative images in our mind that can be off-putting because we can think to be holy means to be extreme. You can't have any fun. You have to come up with a spiritual purpose for everything. So I'm watching this appropriate movie. There's nothing inappropriate about it, but I'm not watching it for entertainment purposes. No, no. I'm watching it so I can better understand the unbelieving world that I may know how to evangelize the unbelievers. When we think like that, we can start to think that holiness really is kind of a burden, unattractive. While we wouldn't say this out loud, but the freedom, quote-unquote, of the world seems a bit more alluring, more attractive, more glorious than all these rules that we have to keep. But as we have seen, to be holy is really something quite beautiful in keeping God's good law. We do not have idols. We honor our parents. We are generous and share with those in need. We do not lie or slander others. And we do not bear grudges. These are all good things for our benefit and others' benefits. We don't want people to lie about us, do we? No, of course not. These things are good. Our sinful nature may struggle against it, but holiness is good, pure, and beautiful. And in today's passage, we get another angle of that diamond of holiness. We see that to be holy is to be wholly devoted to our God. And what does that look like? Well, we're going to see four elements from our passage today. And the first is this, separation. Look at verse 19. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Now here we see a ceremonial aspect of Levitical law. They're intertwined here in Leviticus with the moral law without Leviticus explicitly distinguishing them, saying, now this is the moral law, and this right here that I'm saying is the ceremonial law. We don't see the distinction explicitly mentioned. Rather, they're lumped together here in Leviticus. And to think about this, I think we need to think about a house for a moment. I went to do an elder visitation the other day, and I didn't recognize this person's particular house because uh, there had been some work done. Uh, there's a, it was a different color. There were some other modifications made. But the house was essentially the same. The foundation was the same. There was just some remodeling done. And that's the way it is when it comes to the commandments that God 
gives to us throughout all of Scripture. The foundation is always the moral law summarized in ten command in the Ten Commandments. The ceremonial and civil and worship aspects are like the furniture, like remodeling. It's like the decor. The Ten Commandments, however, remain the foundation. It is always wrong for all people everywhere at all times to worship another god, to commit murder, to steal, etc. Before the Ten Commandments were written on stone and delivered by Moses, Cain, in Genesis 4, was condemned for murdering his brother Abel. The Ten Commandments weren't given yet. Did Cain do something wrong? We also see that God wiped out the world in a flood because of their sin. And we also see in Genesis 18 that Sodom and Gomorrah had fire and sulfur rain down on it, that they were destroyed because of their wickedness. But what defines sin and wickedness before the giving of the Ten Commandments and the Tablets of Stone through Moses? Did God just decide one day, you know, second thought, I really don't like what you guys are doing, so I'm just going to destroy you. Or was there a standard, a consistent standard, to which all people were accountable that was understood and God expected them to know it? Well, we see that there was a standard, God's moral law, to which all people everywhere at all times are accountable. We see that every image bearer knows this by nature. Romans 1 and Romans 2 says this, that they know this by nature. That is intuitively, innately, they know what's right and wrong. Now because sinners suppress the truth in unrighteousness, and are blinded, and we are blinded by our own sin, the law was given in rigid form in order to hold up a mirror, to show us our face, to show us our sin so that we would say, whoa, do I really look like that? Have you ever heard your voice on a recording and go, do I really sound like that? When I'm driving, I'll hear my voice come up on the radio station. Suddenly I want to change the station. I hear my voice. Do I really sound like that? That nasal? and like, How does anyone even understand what I'm saying? Maybe nobody does. But that's the way it is with the law. It shows us this is what you look like. And of course, sinners want to smash that mirror. want to say, get that out of my face. I don't want to see that. They usually put it in, I don't want to hear about your religion. Or they will compare themselves to others in order to prop up their self-righteousness and justify themselves. Well, that guy over there, that law applies to him. He's the one that uh, needs to learn a thing or two, but not me. I got my act together. But nevertheless, God's moral law is always the foundation. And this is the case in the New Testament as well. It remains the same abiding law. Some of the house has been changed. There's been some remodeling 
The furniture has changed, but not its foundation. Uh, we do not offer up sacrifices or go to a physical temple and have a Levitical priest offer up our sacrifice. But we still have no other gods, don't make images, don't use the Lord's name in vain, keep the Sabbath, keep one day in seven holy, honor those in authority, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, and do not covet. That still remains the same. Our worship looks different. Get baptized. We take the Lord's Supper. We don't offer up a bull or a goat. But God's moral law has not changed. Some of the civil and ceremonial laws have changed. The house has not been demolished. The foundation has not been uprooted. But there's been a remodel. And even though Leviticus does not explicitly list out what is moral law and what is ceremonial law, yet we do see the distinctions implied. When the Ten Commandments were given on the stone tablets, the ceremonial laws were written on those tablets, but only the Ten Commandments, God's moral law, that was put in the Ark of the Covenant. And we also see this distinction as we go on to read the rest of our Bibles. For example, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus chides the Pharisees for breaking the commandment of God and not honoring their father and mother. And in that same speech, he turns and declares all things clean. Nothing going into your mouth makes it unclean. And then Mark even gives that parenthetical statement. Thus, Jesus declared all foods clean. So in that same section, we see a distinction. You need to keep the commandments of God. Not the ceremonial laws, though. But yet, God's Ten Commandments remain. So then, what do we learn from the commandments in verse 19, now that we had all that excursus there? Well, we learn that God wants His people to be separate. He is using these physical things to picture this for us. Just as He's using clean and unclean animal distinctions, He is using... These distinctions here, cattle, seed, and clothing, in order to portray this separation. God is telling His people He wants them to keep things pure and separate, clean and distinct. But these have expired with the coming of Christ. This is what's in here, what's in verse 19. So if anyone comes up to you, by the way, and says, I believe in keeping all the Levitical laws, you'd say to them, That's that's interesting. By the way, I like your shirt. What, what shirt is, what's that made out of? Well, you know, polyester and cotton. Well, you're violating verse 19 here. Of course, don't, don't really do that. Be a little more tactful than that. But you get the, you get the point that uh, people don't really uh, consistently keep it if they say you need to keep it. However, the principle is still here that we are to be separate by living pure and holy lives, not intermixing the world's ways with the Lord's ways. In fact, the Apostle Paul uses clothing imagery to talk about our obedience, our moral behavior. He talks about putting off sin and putting on righteousness, putting on Christ, using clothing imagery. 
And so we do not want to intermix these threads of the world with Christ's ways. We don't want to be those who, yes, we're compassionate, but then we are sexually immoral. Or we walk in purity and at the same time walk in anger. We are to seek to put off all wicked ways of the world and seek to put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh with regards to its lust. However, we're still going to be intermixed to some degree as we fight our remaining sin. We are going to be wrestling with the ways of this world, even though we should seek to put them all off and strive for that, yet we, at the end of the day, are still going to have remaining sin in a mixture in some way. And this is why we need to give thanks for that pure robe of righteousness with which we have been clothed. Christ's perfect righteousness. As Isaiah says in Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. For He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. So we have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. His perfect and unmixed obedience to the whole law in our place for which we get credit. And that alone is the basis for our standing with God. Yes, we are to battle against sin. Yes, we are to put off the ways of the world. But no matter how much we battle or struggle, no matter how successful we are or are not, our acceptance with God is based on this perfect robe of righteousness, which is a completely free gift that we add nothing to, that we fully rely on for our standing before God. The second element to being wholly devoted to God is render. That is, we're to render and give to God the things that are due to Him. Verses 20-22. through 22. If a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave assigned to another man and not yet ransomed or given her freedom, a distinction shall be made. They shall not be put to death because she was not free, but he shall bring his compensation to the Lord, to the entrance of the tent of meeting, a ram and a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin that he has committed, and he shall be forgiven for the sin that he has committed. So the situation here is a betrothal that this uh, slave woman is assigned to another man. Uh, she's betrothed to another man. It's kind of like our engagement, except more is involved uh, in it back then in that day, the husband-to-be had to pay a bride price to the father, whatever price he asked for her. And so the betrothal was giving the bride price uh, to the father, and then uh, she would be his, but the marriage, uh, the wedding would not yet be. It would be consummated later on. But here, the bride price would be paid to the master because she uh, was a slave, and then part of that payment would be uh, a payment to ransom, ransom her, to pay for her freedom. And he's done that. 
But in this situation, another man lies with her uh, to which she consented before the wedding. And so this man who lied with her has actually stolen something uh, from another man who paid the bride price for her. Now the reason the penalty is not death is because, as our text says here, she was not yet free. She was still a slave. Now some people see this, misunderstand this, and see this as God not caring for slaves or seeing them as subhuman. But it's actually not the point here. I think understanding the historical background is key here. The reason for mentioning that she is not yet free is to say that she is not yet married because she would be freed upon getting married. So the fact that she is not yet free means that she's not yet married. Why does that matter? It matters because the penalty for adultery, if she was married, would be death. And so they would both die. The penalty for fornication is not death. You see that in Exodus 22, 16 through 17, where if a man lies with a woman to whom he's not married, the penalty is that he must pay the bride price to the father and take her as his wife. But here in this situation, it's complicated. She's a slave, and somebody has already paid the bride price for her. She's betrothed. So she's not yet free. She's not yet married, and a man has lied with her. So what do we do about this bride price? Well, in a sense, he has stolen what belonged to someone else in that culture. And according to Leviticus 5 14 through 6 7, the offering. That is to be offered up in such a case to make a reparation is the guilt offering. And that is why the instruction here is for the man to offer up a guilt offering. And we do see a wonderful promise here that he will be forgiven. And again, we see an amazing picture of the gospel of God's grace. Full payment for his sin is made only by the sacrifice that's offered up by the priest. The man is not forgiven on the condition of him making up for that sin by his own righteousness, promised to do better next time, to have a period of purity, and then the sacrifice will stick. While he must repent, he must seek to not do this again. He must turn from this wicked way. Yet repentance is not payment for sin. Repentance does not cancel out his sin. Only the sacrifice cancels out that sin. And he turns from his sin and seeks to walk in obedience. But that forgiveness is not contingent upon anything that this man does, but only on the sacrifice that the priest has offered as the only payment for sin. And this points to our Lord Jesus Christ. We are forgiven. We are accepted by God on the basis of Christ offering up that sacrifice as complete payment for our sin. And we should then receive the assurance your sins are forgiven. And then we read in verses 23 through 25 that when they plant fruit trees in the land of Canaan. They are to not take any of it for the first three years. In the fourth year, they are to give its fruit.
fruit unto the Lord, bringing it to the tabernacle to have the priest uh, take it. And then in the fifth year, they can eat the fruit from the trees. And this is not only to make the trees healthy in order for them to be blessed with much increase, but also this is giving unto the Lord, rendering to the Lord what belongs to Him. Everything we have comes from Him and belongs ultimately to Him as to be used for His purposes. And so anything we have is to draw our eyes to the Lord in praise and adoration of Him. Now this part of the ceremonial law of the Old Covenant uh, no longer applies. That is the custom no longer applies, but the principle still applies. And that we first give unto the Lord by giving Him thanks, by using the thanks He's given to us for His purposes, rendering to the Lord what is His is how we are wholly devoted to the Lord and what it looks like to be holy. A third element of being wholly devoted to the Lord is worship. The first part of verse 26. You shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. Now this is a repeat from Leviticus 17. The blood is not to be eaten. So no bloody meat. The blood should be drained from any meat that's eaten. And this is because God wants them to recognize the blood by which atonement is made for their souls as sacred, as holy, to treat it as holy, set it apart. And also we saw there in Leviticus 17 that they would use blood in order to worship goat demons. Now those goat demons were basically demons or gods in the form of a goat. They would have an open hole in the dirt and they would pour blood into it and they would think that Demons would, re, would basically feed on that blood and then reveal secrets through uh, the blood in the uh, dirt in the ground. I know these things sound so weird. We do weird things today as well, but back then that's what they did. And so God says you do not use the blood for any of those purposes. Rather, you worship me and me alone and only in the way that I command. And in line with pure worship practices, God goes on to say in verse 26, you shall not interpret omens or tell fortune. fortunes. Fortunes? Is that how you say that? I mean, I know that's like a second grade word. I should be able to say it by now. But fortunes. This is using features of uh, create, uh, creation, such as the moon and positions of the stars or whatever else to predict the future. And included in this is verse 31. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out. Do not make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord, your God. So verse 26 says, don't be this yourself. Don't practice this yourself. Verse 31 says, don't go to those who practice them. And then adds necromancers and mediums, those who seek to contact the dead and dead spirits and the dead spiritual realm in order to gain secret knowledge and tell the future. In our day, these are things like fortune tellers, uh, palm readers, uh, witchcraft, Ouija boards, tarot cards, also these other practices um, where power is ascribed to finite creatures rather than trusting the Creator, all stemming from worry and wanting to be in the know and wanting to be in control. And then we read something that at first sounds strange. Look at verses 27 through 26. You shall not round off the hair on your temples, or mar the edges of your beard. 
you shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Does this mean that we can't go to the barber shop? Or I guess the what, 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 salon. Or go to the salon. Um, you know, when I go to get a haircut, my wife you know, asks me, you also get a, a beard trim. Because I'm starting to look a little shaggy. But Leviticus says, don't trim your beard. Is that sin? Should I not do that? Sorry, honey. Leviticus 19 says, you know, can't do that. Is that what this is talking about? Hairstyles and beard trims and tattoos of our day. Well, Leviticus is talking about certain pagan practices. This is where people... All of this, what's being described here is this cult of the dead practices where they would, ha- they would take, they would shave and have bald spots on their beard, chunks out of their beard or out of their hair. Uh, they would cut themselves, making marks on their body, including making marks on their body with ink and branding, which is what's meant by tattoo here in order to comfort their dead. Now, this is really similar to what Roman Catholics do today in paying indulgences for their dead in order to uh, get them out of purgatory sooner. See, they believe that demons would swarm their dead after uh, they had died. And so in order to get the demons off their backs, so to speak, to distract them away from their loved ones, They would cut themselves, they would mark up their body with ink in order to look dead, to distract these demons so that the demons uh, turn to them and get off the backs of their loved ones. I know, again, that sounds really strange in our day, but they firmly believed that back then. And also, producing some of their blood and even their hair, they would put uh, on these grave sites they believed it was providing some relief to their loved one's souls because they saw blood and hair as the source of life. And so they would do this for these purposes. And so this is not regulating haircuts or tattoos, but rather forbidding pagan practices. What the ESV translated as tattoo means writing with ink, imprinting, or branding a mark on the body. And so if this is not understood in its historical context, even writing something on your hand with an ink pen uh, would be forbidden. But that's not what Leviticus is talking about here. It's talking about pagan practices for the dead. Not forbidding tattoos, but pagan practices for the dead. Tattoos is a matter of Christian liberty that we really can't bind people's consciences to. Let me see verse 29. Do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. So this is the father who gives his daughter to uh, prostitution and cult worship uh, for false worship practices and also in order to gain some money. And so he's using her for that purpose, and that just creates more perversity. And then verse 30, you shall keep my Sabbaths and, re- and reverence my sanctuary. I am 
the Lord. Again, God brings up keeping the Sabbath as part of being holy. Uh, not only does God determine how we worship Him, but also when. We are on God's schedule. He is not on ours. We are, set, we are to set aside the time that God calls us to gather and assemble. And that is why it is tied to, rever to revering His sanctuary, as we see in this verse. So being wholly devoted to God as part of what it looks like to be holy is to worship God the way He desires and when He calls us to. And then a fourth and final element, being wholly devoted to God, as part of what it looks like to be holy is proper recognition. Look at 32. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. So standing up was a sign of respect in that culture, as it is in our culture. Now, when a judge enters the room, you hear someone say, all rise. That's just a sign of honor and respect. When we read the Word of God, we stand. Again, just a sign of honor and respect in, in the culture. and That's their way of showing honor back in their day. They stood before those with gray hair to show respect for their elders. Those older in society is indicated by their gray hair. Now, does this mean that you have to stand up every time you know, Pastor Doug or Pastor Tim walks by? You don't have to worry about me. I don't think the, the beard counts, but I mean, it's like, oh, they walked by. I got I to stand up. Well, no, the custom no longer applies, but the principle still applies. Uh, we should highly regard those who are gray-haired among us. And this is really is counterculture. This is something that our culture does not do. Our culture honors the youth. Our culture puts a higher value on those who are young. Uh, they are seen as special. And in our technological world, old things are outdated and useless. Again, get with the times. You've you got... You got a ten-year-old phone? <laughs> That's a dinosaur. We we disregard it. We see the new as better and the old as worthless. And older people just just not in touch with with what's new and and cool and, and hip. I think even using the word hip shows that not in touch. So it's easier to regard those disregard those who are older. You know what? Somebody asked me about our church. You know what? One of the questions I often get, how many children do you have in your church? It's a good question. You know, we want youth. We want to bring the truth and, and God's praises to the next generation. We want to see our church go on. We love children and young families. We prayed for that. But you know what question I never get? How many gray heads do you have in your congregation? I never get that question, but I should. In fact, that should probably be the first question. Are you, have a, are you a church of wisdom? You have gray-headed people. I suppose bald-headed people count as well. But there's wisdom that comes with that. As Proverbs 16.31 says, gray hair is a crown of glory. This is tied to fear in God. As we see in our verse here, 
This means that you stand in awe of God. That He takes primary place in your life. That's what it means to fear Him. That His glory carries much weight in your heart, leading you to honor those to whom honor is due because this is right in the sight of God. And this also leads to our treatment of strangers. Verses 33-34. through When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now this is not talking about immigration policy or vetting process for crossing a border. Uh, Rather, this is how the people of God are to treat those who seek to join them. Uh, We are to not treat them any differently than anyone else, but love them as ourselves. And I think one way that churches and our church can apply this is just to consider our interactions on a regular basis with those in church. Do we find ourselves interacting only with the same small group? It's okay to interact with with those that uh, we we love, and it's okay to interact regularly uh, with certain people. But do we find ourselves not interacting with those who are less familiar with us? Those who would be considered strangers. That's what stranger means, not familiar. If they are a part of our body, then we are to love them as well. We are to treat them as a native among us, as one of those who are in our circle. We should seek to interact with them and show an interest in them. And this can be difficult because it feels awkward. We have a tendency to fear other people. I use the psychological term, we can be shy. And this fear stems from the garden where Adam and Eve suddenly started to fear others who were not, uh, started to fear one another because of shame. And so, ever since then, this has been a difficulty, a problem. Well, what if I look bad when I interact with others? What if something awkward happens? What if I get uncomfortable? Or, I just don't want to die to myself. However, we are to remember how God has loved us. When we were strangers, when we were aliens, when we were enemies, Christ came in our own nature, born of a virgin, born as a baby, in our own flesh, to reveal God to us and then to bring us to God. And we are to emulate this love because He has first loved us. We are to take the initiative even to first reach out to others rather than waiting waiting for them to reach out to us. We don't sit around and complain that no one has reached out to us when we ourselves have not done the same. We don't wait to first be loved. Rather, we love even when we have not been loved because our confidence is in whose love? The love of Christ for us and what He has done. Going in the confidence of His love for us. We seek to love others. And we set aside any bitterness or resentment to Christ's body because Christ doesn't keep a record of our wrongs. Why would we we keep a record of His body's wrong 
and we initiate taking interest in others. And we seek to always do what's right. Verses 35 through 36. You shall do no wrong in judgment in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just epha, and a just in. You see, the Israelites could take advantage of the stranger who is not familiar with their measurement system. They could rake the scales so that it appears that they're actually selling them more for less when in reality they were not. They were taking advantage of their ignorance and using them for their own gain. But God says we are to in no way take advantage of someone because of their ignorance, because of who they are. Rather, we are to treat everyone justly and fairly. And why are God's people to do this? Look at the end of verse 36 and verse 37. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. Notice the basis once again for keeping God's commandments. It is because of our redemption. We were rescued from our old life of slavery in Egypt, in the kingdom of darkness, by the blood of the Passover lamb. He has freed us from our sin. And why we struggle. And why there's things that, that we battle against and are besetting and we grow so slowly sometimes. Yet we have the good news that we have been redeemed. We were bought with a price. Christ's blood was that payment. And so we are to seek to walk in His commandments because we are forgiven, free, Loved, forever cherished by Christ. We are to keep His commandments. Loving others in the confidence that we have been loved by Him. And so because we have been redeemed out of Egypt, and we are His, we are to be wholly devoted to Him. By being separate from this world and putting off sin, and putting, off, and putting on Christ. Rendering to God what is due to Him. Worshiping Him according to His will alone, properly recognizing those to whom special honor is due, loving the stranger, doing what is right to all people no matter who they are. And this is what it looks like to be holy as God, our Lord and Redeemer, is holy. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to put these things into practice. That some of us struggle greatly in some of these areas while others don't. And that, Father, we, uh, we're just all full of sin. We all have our struggles. And so we ask you to help us, to transform us. And we've heard your word, your word. You yourself has spoken to us. So give us that strength and ability to walk in your commandments and to keep them. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.